Again, as we said last week, I hope that we're not content just to examine ourselves and feel remorse and say, you know what? I really do struggle with this. I really do have idols in my heart in a sense. I hope that we take the next step and that we are transformed by God's word. That we actually make some of the changes that we need to make in our life. And so we've talked about how idolatry is feeling about something the way we should only feel about God. How idolatry happens when we magnify something and we minimize God. And how if we're going to get rid of the idols in our life, we're going to have to magnify God. We're going to have to see how big and how glorious and how grand and how wonderful God is so that the rest of the things in our life are minimized. So that they take their proper place as smaller things, less important things compared to God. And so we talked the first week about relationships and how relationships often get blown out of proportion, get magnified in their significance, and God is minimized so that these human relationships become more important even than God. We talked last week about politics. I'm sure that stepped on a toe or two, that, that politics often can get so magnified and that nations and all of the things revolving around that can get so blown out of proportion that that becomes our hopes and our fears and our identity are all tied up in those nationalistic idols. And how, if we're going to get rid of these things, idols in our life, we're going to have to magnify God. Now, before we get into today's lesson, I thought I'd share with you something I thought was kind of funny. And I told the first service folks that anytime I I think something's funny, I have to run it by Holly first. Uh, One time I... I, I told a joke and I thought it was hilarious. I thought it, I guess, I guess the, the young people now would call it a dad joke. Um, <laughs> apparently that's, that's a euphemism for a joke that's not very funny. But, um, but, but so I, I told a joke that I thought was really funny and, and everybody just kind of stared at me like how you're staring at me right now. So I, it was not funny at all. Nobody even smiled. They weren't even sure it was a joke. And so I told Holly afterwards, I said, I thought that was funny, you know, and she said, next time. You think something's funny, run it by me first. So I ran these by, by Holly and, and she thought they were okay. So I googled the phrase, money can't buy happiness. And I thought it was funny, some of the other phrases that came up with that. So things like, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy ice cream. And that's pretty much the same thing. Um, or money can't buy happiness, but it can buy a jet ski. And you've never seen anybody sad on a jet ski, have you? Uh, or money can't buy happiness, but it's much more comfortable to cry in a Porsche than it is on a bicycle. Um, but that's funny because we really see both sides of it, don't we? We see the truth of both sides of that. On the one hand, we say, well, yeah, I realize and I understand, and it's even become a cliche to say money can't buy happiness because we know people that are rich and that, that, that have everything that, that they really need, that they're not hungry, they have, they have all the, the luxuries of life, and they're miserable. And so we know, don't we? We know intellectually that money doesn't buy happiness, but on the other hand, the things that we think, yeah, but that would make me happy if I had that, are bought with money. And so it's kind of funny because we recognize that that's true in our own life. So we might really, if we're honest, say things like this. Well, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy nice things for my kids. And somewhere deep inside, I think that if I give my kids all kinds of nice things, it'll not only make them happy, 
but it will make me happy. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy a comfortable lifestyle. And somewhere deep inside, we think if I'm comfortable, then I'll be happy. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy financial security. And if I'm financially secure, well, then maybe I'll be happy. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy the admiration, the envy, the respect of others. If I had that, maybe I'd be happy. Of course, we understand, don't we, that that's a a false god, that that's idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. In fact, if we were to look through the Bible and and examine how many times God, and specifically Jesus in the gospel accounts, warns against greed and covetousness, we'd be blown away by how often the Bible talks about that. I was reading a book the other day, and the preacher said, you know, in all of my years of ministry, I had people confess all kinds of sins to me. Every sin you can imagine, they'd come up to me and they say, listen, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z, and I really need to stop, and I need to repent of this. But never in all of his years of ministry had anybody ever confessed greed. Nobody thinks that they struggle with that. Nobody thinks they're they're covetous. Nobody thinks they're greedy. It's something we think that's someone else. Right? But church, listen, you ever have one of those weeks where you study God's word and you think, that has to change me. I cannot be the same. After reading what I've read, hearing what I've heard, I can't be the same. For me, this week, it's been one of those weeks. I sat down on Tuesday afternoon and I read through the Gospel of Luke and it really changed my perspective. Of course, there was nothing that I hadn't seen before, read before, but sitting down and reading it in one sitting and especially paying attention to this theme. There's lots of themes in all of the gospel accounts, but in the book of Luke, one of the themes is wealth and poverty. And so I want to challenge you this week to sit down. It should take about two and a half hours, like watching a movie or something, but better. And sit down and read through the book of Luke and really pay attention to what God, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit who is writing through the pen of Luke, what God is telling us about this theme of wealth and poverty. And I think you're going to be surprised maybe by what you see. I really came to see that Jesus made it pretty obvious, especially in this gospel account, that he came to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to preach good news to the poor. And that Jesus came to rescue those who are enslaved to worldly treasure, to wealth. Do you you realize that? Do you realize that when we are enslaved to worldly treasure, when we are enslaved to wealth and to money, that what we need is rescue from bondage? That that rat race we're always talking about, that chasing, and you always have to have more, and you have to protect what you already have, that is slavery. And we need to be rescued from it. And Jesus came to rescue those who were enslaved to earthly treasures. But as you go through the book, you'll see that some who were often referred to simply as the rich, if the rich love their treasure more than their king, then even what they had would be taken away from them. So I want to challenge you, have dinner with Jesus sometime this week. 
Sit down and read through the gospel account of Luke and see if you don't see these things. Let me go through a few of those. I don't have time to, to touch on everything that the book says about these, these points. But, but first, in the first chapter, Luke chapter 1, we see Mary's praise to God. And one of the things that she says is that God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. In the third chapter of Luke, we, we see John the baptizer that is preaching the gospel to the good news, introducing and, and preparing the way for Jesus. And, and, and we see that he's telling the people of Israel to bear good fruit, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if they don't, if they don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, then they're going to be like a tree that's cut down and thrown into the fire. And, and, and if a preacher says to you, repent, Bear fruit. Prove that you've repented. Show God that you've repented and that you've changed your ways. Well, then if somebody says that to you, you say, well, how? What am I supposed to do? What should we do? And John says to them this, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Clothing, right? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In fact, he goes on to talk to tax collectors and to soldiers, and everything he says deals with money. It's interesting, isn't it? Bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, a lot of that has to do with money. Then we read in John chapter, or sorry, Luke chapter 4, Jesus' temptation, that, that Jesus in heaven forever with God and enjoying the presence of God gave up the riches of heaven and became poor for our sakes. That God in the... I mean, think about that. I just... It, it never ceases to amaze me that God got hungry. Right? I mean, since the beginning of time, God's never been hungry. He's God. He doesn't need anything. But the, the second person of the Godhead took on human flesh and came here and he got hungry. And he got tired and he had to sleep and he got thirsty and he had to have something to drink and he spends 40 days in the wilderness hungry. And even in his hunger, even in his poverty, he doesn't let anything come between him and his heavenly father. Then in the same chapter later, Jesus is reading from Isaiah and he's quoting Isaiah and he says, this is my mission. What, what Isaiah talked about is being fulfilled in me. And Jesus says that his mission was to proclaim good news to the poor, to set liberty, to give liberty to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I didn't put this on the screen, but in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this story about a rich man who has a bumper crop. And, and in that day and time, there'd be nothing better, right, than to have so much crops, you don't know what to do with it, right? And so he, he has all of this extra. In fact, he doesn't even have room for all of the extra stuff that he has. And so he says, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones, right? So that I have room for all of my stuff. And then I could just sit back and relax and say, ah, this is the life, right? And Jesus says that God says to him, you fool. Tonight, your life will be demanded from you. Well, God, that seems a little harsh, right? I mean, come on now. What did he do wrong? He was hoarding his wealth. That's what he did wrong. He loved his stuff. He wasn't sharing with the poor. That's what he did wrong. 
And he says all of this and tells this story to illustrate this point that he says in Luke 12 and verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Which again, Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 5 is idolatry. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You say, well, wait a second, Wes, just hold on just a second. You're not saying it's a sin to be rich, are you? No, not really. I don't think that's necessarily what Jesus is saying. But he does make it very clear that it is a sin to be rich if you're not sharing with those in need. It is a sin to be rich if your wealth becomes your hope. It is a sin to be rich if your stuff and your money becomes your God. In Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 19, we see two tax collectors. The first is Levi, who is Matthew, and the second is a a wee little man, Zacchaeus, right? And we know that story, and we've sung that song, climbed up in a sycamore tree, our kids could sing it for us. But what's happening there? What's happening when Jesus calls Levi or Matthew to follow him and he leaves his tax booth? Or when Jesus says to Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to your house. And do you see what Zacchaeus does? He says, I'm going to give away half of my stuff. And if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to return it fourfold. What has Jesus done? He set them free. He set them free from their bondage. In that day and time, most of you know that a tax collector was a Jew who worked for the Roman government. And so you were already seen as a a turncoat, as a traitor to your own people. But worse than that, you had to buy your way into being a tax collector. And Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in that region. They were slaves of wealth. They were slaves of of treasure. They said, all that matters is getting more and having and lining my pockets and getting these things. And Jesus comes along and says, I want to offer you something better, a relationship with me, a relationship to the Father. I want to reconcile you to God. And these tax collectors saw it and they saw the value in Jesus and in knowing Jesus and they were set free from their bondage to wealth. But then there were people like Luke chapter 18. Look over there. We have the the rich young ruler. Most of you are probably pretty familiar with that story. And so you have this rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, they have a conversation about the commandments. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've kept those. What else do I need to do? And so Jesus says in verse 22, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became, and you should almost underline that and circle it, shouldn't we? He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Man, if that's not hard to listen to, you're not paying attention, right? Because for me, that's incredibly hard. And it's like, wait a second. Jesus, what are you, what are you saying? 
Are you really saying that having money, having wealth, having stuff, living a comfortable lifestyle actually puts you at a spiritual disadvantage? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He'll go on to say it's not impossible for a rich person to be saved, but it's hard. It's difficult. Why? Because, man, when you got stuff, it's hard to even imagine giving it up, right? When we can look at people in another country, I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about teenagers and they, they like their, their video games and it's fun. And once you get to sit down with your video game, it's, it's awesome. And when I was in youth ministry and I'd have to take them away from that for a week or so, they go through withdrawals for a little bit, right? I mean, you kind of get, but we're the same with our cell phones and our Starbucks and our cars and our houses and our cable TV and our Wi-Fi. And once you've got it, It's pretty hard to imagine life without it. But if you've never had it, you don't know. But once you taste the fruit, this fruit that tasted and you think it's good, but it really turns to gravel in your mouth, but you keep wanting more and more and more, and you really become a slave of it. And it's so hard because every single one of us, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to accept the gospel and be obedient to the gospel, we have to decide, what do I treasure? And so here a young man has to make that decision. What's more value to, valuable to me to be a follower of Jesus or to keep all my stuff? And he walked away sad. Now, we don't often ask people to make that decision, right? To make that distinction. But you have to, in your heart, in your mind, you have to decide what's more valuable to me. If I had to decide between following Jesus and giving up everything and giving it to the poor, which one would I decide? Would you go with Jesus like the tax collectors did and be free of your bondage? Or would you walk away sad? You see, because that's what this entire gospel account is about. Is about making that decision. What's more important to me? Do I choose Jesus or do I choose wealth? Do I choose the stuff? Now, our primary text is going to come from Luke chapter 16. You're hoping that already was our primary text, I'm sure. But uh, Luke 16. And and so Jesus tells this kind of weird parable. I mean, it's, it's probably, if you had to list all of the parables and pick the weirdest one, I mean, this is probably the weirdest one. It's, it's one that's difficult to really understand. In fact, everybody in the story is kind of a bad guy, and, you know, and you're supposed to draw some kind of spiritual application from that. But don't worry, because Jesus tells us what he's talking about. But, but he has this manager who's kind of a crooked, deceitful kind of a guy, and he's the manager of his, his boss's accounts, and he's been squandering his boss's money and spending it on himself. But then when he finds out that he's going to be judged for his actions, he starts leveraging his accounts that he still has at his disposal in order to make friends so it'll pay off for him later. And Jesus actually commends him. But then look at verse 9. It says this, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus says, listen, I mean, he's not telling you to be dishonest. He's not telling you to, to have business dealings like this guy. What he's saying is we're all stewards of the things that God has given us, aren't we? And sometimes the world knows how to leverage the things at their disposal for relationships better than we do. And he says, listen, the the time is running out. You have these worldly treasures at your disposal. 
Stop hoarding them. Stop sitting on them. Leverage them for the good of others and the glory of God. Leverage them for relationships. And you say, well, wait a second, but, but that wasn't his money that he was leveraging. It's not yours either. That's the whole point, isn't it? That money you got in your bank account, it's not yours. The, the, everything that you have at your disposal, it's not yours. You're just a steward, just like he was a steward. And our Lord is telling us that all of this stuff that we have at our disposal, it's not bad. It's good. It's bad when we make it an ultimate thing and we want to hoard it and we want to spend it on ourselves. Your time is running out. Use what God has given you to build relationships. Use what God has given you to do good for others and do good for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. Look at verse 10. Next verse. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Right? And think about it. Let's think about that this morning. You know, I've seen that in me. That if I can't be trusted to use the material things God has put at my disposal for the good of others and for His glory, then what am I going to do with the true riches, which are the the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the news, the information about the gospel, about the kingdom of God? And so Jesus is saying, listen, Israel, if you haven't been faithful with the stuff, if you haven't been faithful with the wealth, then who's going to give you true riches? What are you going to do with those? Hoard them the same way you've done with the money, right? I gave you money. What were you supposed to do with it? Do good with it, right? Share it. Build relationships. Do good for people. Bring God glory with it. And now I'm going to give you true riches, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the kingdom of God. Now it's here and I'm going to entrust that to you? No. You won't be entrusted with that. Because you haven't even been faithful with the little. Powerful truth, isn't it? Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see those words? If you circle in your Bible, you might circle those words. Love, devoted to, and serve. Those are God words, aren't they? They're worship words. And Jesus says, everyone who wants to be my disciple, Luke chapter 14, you've got to renounce all that you have. You've got to, he says, hate father and mother, wife and children, even your own life to be my disciple. You've got to decide. Who will I say to, you are worthy of my love. You are worthy of my devotion. You are worthy of my service. Will it be to earthly things? Will I devote myself and love and serve the things of this earth? Or will I reserve that kind of ultimate love and ultimate devotion and ultimate service for God and God alone? You see, but if you're like me, it's so easy to show up on Sunday morning and tell God all day long, God, you alone are worthy. You are all to us, right? You're all to us. All to Jesus, I surrender. None of self and all of thee, right? It's easy 
to come here on Sundays and Wednesdays and say, you alone are worthy of my love. You alone are worthy of my devotion. You alone are worthy of my service. But then on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, to actually devote ourselves to and be in service to and love in an ultimate way the things of this world, to get caught up in the bondage of the rat race, right? And Jesus wants to set us free. So we don't want to be like the people of Jesus' day who honored him with their lips, who said, yes, you alone are worthy, but their hearts were far from him. We want to be people who say with our lips, you alone are worthy of my love and my devotion and my service, and then we live it out in our life. And what does it look like? It looks like generosity to the poor. It looks like letting go of stuff, right? It looks like not hoarding stuff. Because if we're really honest with what Jesus is saying, he is saying that it is a sin to be rich and not be rich towards God. And not be rich in good works. Not be rich in good fruit. And that if we bear not fruit, the axe is at the root, ready to chop it down, as John the Baptist said. So we've got to stop and ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying? In the very next few verses, Jesus goes on to give us this story about a rich man and a poor man. And it's interesting, in the story, the poor man is given a name. In his lifetime, nobody probably knew his name was Lazarus. Nobody ever called him by his name. He was just a poor beggar that sat there and was ugly and hard to look at and begged for food. And there was a rich man, and probably everybody knew his name, but in the story, he doesn't have a name. And Lazarus now has a name. And the rich man, he had all kinds of feasts, and he enjoyed himself, and he had nice clothes and a nice house, and he ate all kinds of good food. And at his gate, there was a poor man, Lazarus, who wanted just a crumb from the rich man's table. His body was covered in sores and the dogs came and licked his wounds. And they both died. And the rich man ends up in torment. You say, what? Why? Does the story say? Yeah, absolutely it says. That's what the whole gospel account is about. It's about the fact that he loved and was devoted to and served wealth and not God. And it was evidenced by his lack of generosity to the poor man who was laying at his he didn't treasure God and he didn't treasure the people that were made in God's own image. And so Jesus comes to preach good news to the poor and to say to the rich, I want to set you free. I want to set you free from your bondage. I, 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 want, to, I want to let you go. Jesus is the true treasure. That's what we want to walk away with, isn't it? So that we give to the poor not out of guilt, not in trying to earn our way to heaven. We don't give to the poor because we, we want to make God love us. Why do we give to the poor? Why do we help those in need? Because we don't live for stuff anymore, right? When Zacchaeus was walking along with Jesus and he said, I'm going to give away half of everything I have and I'm going to give four times what I defrauded people back. Why? Because he finally found something worth living for. And it wasn't stuff. Are we going to learn that lesson? I told the people in first service that I'm responding to the message this morning. I'm coming forward this morning. Because this humbles me. And it reminds me that Wes, God and God alone has to be your treasure 
And if you hoard it and keep it to yourself and put your hope in the uncertainty of riches rather than in God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy, you will suffer in this life and in the next. God must be your treasure. Let's not be like the rich man in the story who waited too long and found out too late that he was treasuring the wrong things. So if you aren't a Christian yet, you need to understand that that's what becoming a Christian is all about. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, you got to count the cost. You have to realize that what you're getting is entirely more valuable than what you're giving up, but you have to be ready to give it up. You have to be ready to decide who's more important to me, Jesus or my mother and my brothers, and my children, my wife, my own life. What's more important to me? What's more valuable to me? And when we're baptized with Jesus, we're saying I'm dead to the world and the things of the world and I'm be raised up to walk in newness of life. And trust me, we'll be better disciples. We'll be better parents, spouses. We're better children if we devote ourselves to God first and then everything else is put in proper perspective. But those of us that have made that decision and have been baptized and clothed with Jesus, maybe we need prayers or encouragement from each other. I want you to pray for me that I treasure Jesus above the things of this world. And if we can pray with you and pray for you, there's a room in the back after services. You can meet with some of the elders. You can come forward because we're in this together And we need to understand that if wealth puts us at a spiritual disadvantage, then we, above all people in the world, are disadvantaged, spiritually speaking, because we live in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And sometimes it's hard for us to admit that. We think the poor need our pity, but really, it's those of us that won't let go of our stuff and think our stuff is ultimate and think our stuff is worth living for and dying for. It's those that ought to be pitied above all people. Jesus is the true treasure. If we can help you in any way, won't you come forward now as we stand and sing?